we were deciding between mobile home parks and storage. We ended up selecting storage, honestly, because people don't live there. That was attractive to us. Self-storage to some extent is a little insulated from rent control laws and some of the headaches that tenants that live in houses may cause, especially in affordable housing. So we chose storage and did a pilot, bought our first facility, and uh, we haven't looked back. We're still going now. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Our guest today uh, is Frank Scapacci. He's a partner and co-founder of Gray Line Investments. He's a West Point graduate and former Army football team captain. Uh, upon graduating from West Point, he completed U.S. Army Ranger and Airborne School, deployed to Afghanistan and Kuwait. Uh, as, as a captain, he served in a brigade of fire support officer for 2-4 uh, Indiana Division. He transitioned in financial services in 2014, Erson Young and J.P. Morgan. By 2018, discovered an interest in real estate and started buying single-family rentals. In 2020, he founded Gray Line Investments with his partner, John Plumstead, and they bought, sold, brokered over 150 homes. And, and in 21, they decided to go full-time and they focused on self-storage. Uh, and then they are, uh, you're, you're going to hear him uh, you know, talk about self-storage and what's changed over the last number of years. And you know, we're going to talk about self-storage versus uh, you know, uh, you know, what's happening in the market right now. But then also, uh, he's going to lay out a few tips to raising money that I thought were, were really good. Uh, and you're going to, I just feel like some of these things, you hear me talk about it. If, if folks just implemented some of these things right away, you're going to be able to raise more capital for your deals. Frank, welcome to the show. Honored to have you. Honored to meet you. And uh, first and foremost, want to thank you for your military service. Uh, I just have a, the utmost respect for our servicemen and women. So grateful for that. Uh, just right off the bat, I want to thank you for, for your service. Well, thank you, Whitney. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for your service as well. Um, I'm pumped. It's going to be fun. Yeah. No, looking forward to it. I know you have uh, a, a diverse background, and, and I, I want to dive into that a little bit. And then, but you have focused on self storage now, and so I want to hear the the state of self storage, right? Uh, and because I know that's what listeners are wondering about as well: is there a passive investor looking to invest in that asset class, or maybe they're an operator, you know, that are, that's uh, growing in self storage as well? So I want to get to that. But before we do, man, tell us a little more about Frank. You know, how did you get there? A little bit about your background. I, I, I relate to you, obviously, in the military background in a big way, but that shaped a lot of who I am now, right? You know, and even my entrepreneurial drive to some degree, some of those things. So I'm interested to hear, you know, maybe how that shaped you, but then some of your more professional, you know, after military background as well. I, I'm a New Yorker by trade. That's where I, I hail from. And you're right. I did commission into the army as a lieutenant in 2009, deployed twice, once to Afghanistan and once to Kuwait. Um, that was all between 2011 and 2014. It's a great experience, um, as you are aware of. And during that time, you know, you have a lot of people that are doing VA loans. I eventually used a VA loan to get my primary residence, and that's like the uh, the true like low and no money down strategy, right? Like there's like books on that stuff, but the VA loan is like the probably the best low and no money down thing. You may and have to my... risk your life to get it done, though. <laughs> yeah, you gotta you gotta pay Uncle Sam, right? So there's a cost, but it is a great loan product, and. And I think I only put down like three to five percent on my primary residence or something like that. Um, at like now I refinance and my interest rate's like three flat, right? So it's an incredible loan. That was my first exposure to real estate. And I was like, oh, this is cool. This is this is awesome, right? Then uh I bought a couple rentals outside of Fort Hood, Fort Sill, um, for which are army bases. And then my business partner called me one day 
His name's John Plumstead. And he's like, Hey, do you want to start doing this together? Like do this whole real estate thing? I said, yes. We started hustling single family houses, did a ton of deals, um, wholesale some houses, kept some rentals, long story there. And then at some point, just over two years ago, we said, Hey, let's try to graduate, move into a more efficient asset class, maybe try to invest in some more long-term um, investments and get some more appreciation than uh, a house in Fort Sill. Um, and uh, we landed on storage. We were deciding between mobile home parks and storage. We ended up selecting storage, honestly, because people don't live there. That was attractive to us. It sounds kind of crazy, but uh, self-storage to some extent is a little insulated from rent control laws and some of the headaches that tenants that live in houses may cause, especially in affordable housing. So we chose storage and did a pilot, bought our first facility, and uh, we haven't looked back. We're still going now. So that's that's how we got into it. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And tell me, uh, let's jump into though, and, and you know, with your focus on self storage again, I know so many have have are wondering, right? What is the state of self storage? Give us more of a, I guess, a economic climate update. You know, from your opinion, uh, just on that asset class. Well, self storage has changed a lot. If you went back seven to ten years ago. You're just looking at a very fragmented asset class. What does that mean? It means the vast majority of the assets are owned by mom and pops or individual owners. And over the past 10 years, it's still kind of like that, but it's been changing a lot. So I think the last time I checked, we're still like hovering around 50% like private equity or institutionally owned storage. And like half the storage is essentially owned by mom and pops, but that number's changed a lot. So there's a lot of um, consolidation happening in the industry. What does that mean for pricing? Well, it means prices are going up, right? Like the more capital that's flowing into the asset class, the more the cap rates are compressing, the more lenders are also jumping into, right? And all this stuff has, has caused asset prices to get pretty high. And the thing that's interesting is the interest rate hikes have caused multifamily pricing to go down, right? Multifamily is down 12 to 15%. Storage pricing has re- remained very resilient. I spoke to a broker last week in New York City, and he said, even for tertiary storage, if I price it at a 6.75 cap, it sells immediately. Like it's gone. And I, we look at every deal that hits the market and I would say that that's true. And a lot of times I'm seeing tertiary stuff trading at 6.5. So we haven't been able to buy a lot because you have to go all off market in this type of environment to make anything pencil. Um, so the state of self-storage is it's resilient right now in terms of asset pricing, for sure. You mentioned you have to go off market. Uh, I guess speak to you know, how you're doing that, you know, or what does that look like as far as going off market, obviously direct to seller? So our direct to seller marketing is we use direct mail as our primary, and we're primarily focused on Florida and Georgia right now. It's more targeted than that, but I'll just say Florida and Georgia. And we had a cold caller working 24 seven, not 24 seven, but 40 hours a week. And they came up with a good list of leads. But at this point, we're just nurturing those, my partner and I, Reason being is there's just not that many storage facilities compared to other asset classes. There's only about you know fifty to sixty thousand of them in the country, so we're really only looking at you know say a couple thousand. So the prospecting is it's just not that big of a sales funnel, honestly. Yeah, and that's a pro and a con, I guess, right? Uh, both sides of that that could be a, a negative or a positive. But man, at least you. It sounds like though you all you all have that list now, and you're focusing on the relationships. Right. Yeah, we're nurturing them along. It's uh, I, I agree with what you said. It's good and bad. It makes it easy to prioritize who you want to talk to, but the problem is everyone else has that advantage too. So every broker yeah. and um, competitor, and some of them are our friends, have also called those owners. So it is extremely competitive. 
Speak to you know the financing component for self storage, and you know what what does that look like now for you know or in that asset class? You know, since the you know interest rates obviously have changed a little. Yeah, so we two of our three last deals have either been seller financing or cash, but the last time we did go to market for debt was in January, and our loan was six point five percent interest. It was either twenty or twenty five year am. I'm actually forgetting. Um, they didn't give us an IO period, so we were paying principal right off the bat, and uh, it balloons in five years, I think. So the rate six point five. Um, a year ago, we were borrowing at borrowing at four point two five. So it's pretty big change. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, do you see? I don't know. As you all are assessing deal flow right now, uh, how how are you accounting for maybe interest rates a year from now? I mean, we don't know what rates are going to do. I think uh, there's all these different like websites you can go to to see what Wall Street's saying is going to happen, and there's people placing bets on it. And from what I can tell, it looks like they're going to stay a little bit higher for a little bit longer than people think, but they're probably leveling out sometime soon. That's what the betters of the world are saying. How we are responding is we're trying to focus more and more on on levered yield on cost um, as our guiding principle, and. Really, what does that mean? That's hey, imagine you don't have a mortgage, and what is your ROI or yield on the money you put into the deal? That's unlevered yield on cost because that number is independent of what happens with interest rates. So it's it's easier for us to use that as a guiding principle when interest rates are extremely volatile. So that's something we're doing. Yeah. Well, you know, speak to your. Um, I, I guess let's dive into some of your ability to raise capital right now. You know uh, that. That's changed a lot right now for a lot of people in our industry, almost everyone. Yeah. Uh, and so, uh, but, uh, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, in a, in a time like this, you know, when things get a little more challenging, uh, we learn a lot, right? You or you either choose to learn a lot or you, or you don't, I guess, uh, you know, and improve, <laughs> you know, uh, or you get taught some hard lessons or worse lessons maybe. But, but uh, you know, at the moment, I, I just constantly hear everybody talking about, how, you know, it's more difficult. But, you know, so what's what's been your path right now to being able to consistently raise um, you know, raise capital as needed. I mean, our path at the our first deal we syndicated, it was um, it was mostly filled with people we had worked with in our single family days, like private money lenders. Um, I think we, my brother was in, and I had one friend. The rest of it was all like single family folk that we had worked with. It's evolved since then um, to there's a bigger share of more like professional commercial real estate LPs, people that invest in multiple deals and multiple sponsors. And now that makes the majority of our capital. So who invests with us has changed a lot. And I think anyone who does, you know, syndications like one, two, three, four, and then five follows that trajectory. Um, but to your point, is it getting harder? Yes. Right. So even I I I keep track of our conversion. Like how many people do I talk to invest in our deals? I keep track of it. And when we had no track record, this is like late 21, 22 timeframe. We were batting like 70%. Like if I spoke to someone, they contributed in some form or fashion to a deal. We get some track record. We actually go full cycle on a deal. And the last deal on my raise, I was batting like 35%. And it was a good deal, right? Like solid deal. Why? I think people simply have less discretionary income or money. And there's definitely more fear in the market or a negative sentiment. So what does that do for a capital raiser? Well, you're going to have to cast a wider net to hit the same results, unless you just get lucky, right? So I think conversion for fundraisers are, is down. 
And as a result of that, you're seeing some sponsors move their terms. We haven't really moved ours very much, but they're moving their terms in LP's favor. So I've seen people with 6% preferred returns move it to seven or seven to eight, um, which is, I think, where the market kind of settles. Is like 8% is pretty normal. And they're moving their promotes back to what was probably normal in 2017 and 18. Yeah. Are anything you're doing, you know, you mentioned like casting a wider net. Uh, how, what ways are you all maybe doing that or getting more people in your funnel? We have a, a mailing list or email list we nurture um, that's got a couple of thousand people on it. We also use Twitter. Twitter is getting harder, I think, for organic reach, um, but we still use it. I have a small, small account or small following. So is my partner. Um, so we made friends and made some acquaintances from there. And then after that, it's a lot of word of mouth. You know, people from our first deal that had a, a solid exit go talk to their buddy, their uncle, aunt, whomever, and you get some organic um, word of mouth right there. You mentioned, uh, you know, this email list, a couple thousand people on it. Uh, it's it's difficult to gain a couple thousand people unless you go buy a list or something, right? But but you know, speak to how maybe you grew you grew even your email list to a few thousand people. Well, one thing I will say is this is where being you know a veteran or someone in the military did help because um we started telling people in our West Point network where West Pointers like hey we're starting this business and we're excited about it and we we got a pretty decent bump in subscriptions just from that because there is a little bit of a sense of community coming from a small school like that so I think that did help so that that probably got us like a couple hundred right there we used to wholesale houses too and wholesalers are essentially like really scrappy marketers so we're getting also some residual effects there as well, for people we had contacted. So that was a good jumping off point. And then I'd say um, Twitter was like the the last push that got us some decent reach. So that, that's it was like a three-pronged attack, but um, that's how we did it. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, speak to like, you know, somebody that's that's not familiar with Twitter. And I can't say that I'm extremely familiar. I mean, our team uses it, but I'm not on there very much. Uh, if if at all, hardly. But uh, you know, give some guidance. Somebody, you know, how have you successfully used that platform? Uh, you know, and gained investors through that. I think our strategy and Nick Huber, who's got a big following, kind of told us to do this or coached us through this because we had told him like, hey, we have to to build um, some reach in our business, and we were just pretty vulnerable. Like, hey, this is what we're trying to do. I hope in six months, this is what our business looks like. We're going to just tell our story. We're, hey, month number one, we're looking at, we looked at X amount of deals. We made X amount of offers. And this is how many contracts we got. You know, month number one, it's zero, right? And then you just keep updating your audience um, with your experience. And people like that. People like, like following along that hero's journey, that entrepreneur that's like honest about their struggles. And, and we tried to be vulnerable and just share that stuff with the world. And, you know, our followings are small, but. They, they still matter to a certain extent. They still add value to our company. So that's that was basically it. I, I think often, you know, we uh, we struggle. We think we struggle to come up with content, right? Uh, but it, but if you are documenting your journey, there's typically things all the time you could talk about, right? Uh, is that what you found? Yeah, I, there's always something like uh, a a contract that you have to terminate, um, a deal that's going well, right? A property that turns around fast or one that you're driving occupancy and you wish it was going faster. Like there's always something going on in the business. I think, I think actually the biggest challenge for me is sometimes I want to post something and I get scared because it's like vulnerable or it makes me nervous. And when you have that feeling, it's almost always true that you should press the button, you know, like 
that those are the things that actually get you the reach in fundraising, but it is scary. You know, like you get scared. So the, I think the moat or like where you separate yourself is like kind of leaning in and taking on some of that risk and, you know, be, be willing to be wrong in public. Um, I think, I think if you're an, the influencers do that, I'm not an influencer, but that's, that's what they do. Uh, you know, what we, what we think about the future affects what we do now. Right. And so are the decisions we're making. So do you have any predictions on just what you expect to happen in the real estate market? And it can be self-storage specifically, but uh, just, or, you know, just in the economic climate in general over the next six, 12 months. Like asset classes behave differently, but they're still somewhat related. Like I think as cap rates continue to expand in office and multifamily, you know, you'll probably see money flow there, right? Because right now industrial storage are very, very hot. So I think it's fair. I think you have to be willing to um, to underwrite with some cap rate expansion on storage and industrial, which is what we're focused on right now. Um, let's say it's like 25 bips or 50 bips and then pressure test it from there, right? Like have a bad scenario, you know, like way worse than that. So I think you have to do that. But as far as storage goes, I think we've already seen significant drop in customer demand. And if you're still doing well today, like I think you're in good position. Um, moving volumes are way down. That's a big demand driver for self-storage. Really, really big. I think it's like 20% of our customer base is moving and no one's buying homes. So that we've already seen rates go down. So I think storage is going to start to level out. And my theory there is, that shorter lease duration real estate will um, feels the market effects of these rate hikes first. And the longer the lease, the longer it will take to feel it. Um, so at storage, it's month to month. So we feel it right away. So I think storage will probably level out in demand, but maybe have cap rate expansion, but generally be resilient. That's that's my feeling. Yeah. What about, uh, you know, if you're buying an asset right now, uh, you know, just preparing for a downturn, right? What I usually say is preparing for the worst but then something else happening as well. You know, how do you know you're prepared for that when looking at a self-storage unit right now? Most people who get burned historically is financing. If you have maturities coming up in 24 or 25, people, I think, need to be actively coming up with a game plan. Maturing mean loans are coming due. You have a balloon payments. Like, hey, your, your million-dollar loan is due July of 2023. You got to have a plan for that. So in our case, we fixed all of our debts and we don't have a maturity or a balloon until 2026 on any of our debt. So I feel like we did a really good job of protecting ourselves from that risk. Like if lending dries up, we don't get caught with our pants down. So I think that's the number one way to protect yourself. And I think that's agnostic of asset class. It's, it's everything. What about, uh, you mentioned the three ways you've raised money. Uh, or three specific things, but I always like to ask, what's your best source for meeting new investors right now? It's a good question. I I actually still think it's our West Point network. <laughs> like like uh, if we just keep talking to these people that share this common experience, you just get introduced to more friends. Um, another thing I I'm starting to do that I, I'm finding is mutually beneficial is I, I started contributing with a non for profit that's military focused. And I'm trying to stand up the New York chapter. I think I'm the first guy in New York. Um, and you end up networking with a lot of people that are like-minded, good folk. Uh, I think that's a beneficial beneficial action too um, for a fundraiser, which was kind of like a nice um, hidden surprise. What about, uh, what, what are some of the most important metrics that you track? And that could be personally or professionally. 
Oh man. Do you mean like for property or fundraising? Either or? way. So I, I kind of leave it open on purpose. And what I, what I typically will say, well, it, could, it could be your bench press number or how many mornings you got out of bed on time to, to how many properties you're underwriting, you know, whatever you consider some of the most important metrics for you personally. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, we measure a lot of things. I think the most important thing I measure though, is uh, I have a rule. I, I have to exercise four days a week. <laughs> and then if I hit four out of seven, you know, I'll try to get five, but that's like my minimum number. I want to always get four. It's probably the most, besides like being with my kids and my wife, it's probably the most important thing that I do or don't do, <laughs> you know. Any other habits that you're disciplined about? I, I get up early. So I I make time. I have a good morning routine. I like to wake up around 530, either exercise or read. Um, and I'm pretty good about doing that every day. And that's it. I wake, I work from home. I wake up early. I do my thing in the morning. Grab my coffee afterwards, hang out my kids, take them to school, work every day. And that's it. You know, it's, I live a pretty boring life. <laughs> how, 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 do, how do you like to give back? Uh, this not-for-profit I joined, uh, it's called Hero Hut. It's uh, mainly focused on running events and co-sponsoring events that bring veterans together. Um, I think I'm passionate about it because I got out of the army, went into financial services consulting, toiled in there for five years, hated it. And generally looking back, bumbled my transition. Like I never asked myself, like, what do I want to do or what am I good at? It sounds really dumb, but I think a lot of vets kind of make that mistake. So I'm kind of passionate about talking about that and um, trying to help people navigate that process. Yeah. Yeah. So you're saying a lot of vets will they come home and say, what am I good at? They don't know like where to turn kind of thing. Yeah. Well, you're also conditioned, like the army doesn't care what you're good at or bad at. It just has a bar and you have to just go reach it. And people forget um, when they get out, they're overwhelmed by how many options they have and they forget that their skills get a vote in what they do. And I think I was in that category, um, which is could could put you in a tough place to be totally honest. So yeah, yeah. No, I can relate to that coming home and trying to figure out what 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 do I do now, right? It's uh, overwhelming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, Frank, I'm I'm grateful to have had you on the show. And again, thank you for your service. And but really thinking through the state of the market as far as self storage and you know what you know ten years ago versus now, even some ways that you all are finding deals right now. But uh, the the reality of uh, you know uh, a small number of self storage complexes right in the whole US and and what that takes to now go buy them uh but financing uh and then even some how you're going about raising money and some successful tips I, again i just think uh there's a few shows even re recently and this is one of them where I, I feel like if a listener is listening and they just go implement a few of these things they're going to have some success right it's usually the people listen and they don't actually go put some feet to it. Uh, and so I appreciate your your transparency in that. How can the listeners get in touch with you and learn more about you? I'm most active on Twitter. My handle is at Frank Skep with two Ps. I'm on LinkedIn too. If you follow me on Twitter, I generally respond to my DMs and try to be helpful when I can. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today.